You're listening to Tabletop Arcanum, a podcast dedicated to learning and exploring the hobby of tabletop gaming. Your hosts are Justin Taylor and Richard Geese, so sit back and relax as we talk, discuss, and joke our way through the hobby we love so much. Welcome to Tabletop Arcanum, this is Justin, and on today's episode we have a special designer spotlight. Got the chance to talk to Alex Flagg from Crafty Games. Alex has done a lot in his tenure in the industry, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. Welcome to Tabletop Arcane. Thanks for coming and joining us today. Alex Flagg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? Uh, okay, well, my name is Alex Flagg. I am a game designer and developer with Crafty Games. We have founder and partner at Crafty Games, a small independent role-playing game and board game company. I've been working in the industry, the game industry, since 2002, officially. Been a gamer most of my life. Dipped my toes in a lot of different pools. Started out with role-playing games and predominantly built my career there. Been about 15 years doing that almost exclusively. Then have been moving into board games games, card games, and other things like that as well. Awesome. So what made you take that leap from being a gamer and part of the community to being in the industry and actually making stuff to have other people play? So I, I started out as a kid. I wanted to be a comic book person. So I wanted to be a comic book author. I wanted to write my own comics and illustrate them if I could ever get good enough. And so, you know, from the time I was 10 and on all the way through high school and a good chunk of college, that that's what I was aspiring to do. I live in Portland, Oregon. And so, you know, we're the home to Dark Horse Comics and Oni Press and a number of other studios. So it's like there was always kind of a big comic book scene here and it was really easy to meet illustrators. There's a ton of illustrators that lived here and, and stuff like that. So we so that really got me interested in like the business side of creativity, which I was foundational for getting into games eventually. And then I went to college in the Midwest. I had a little school called uh, Beloit College um, mm. in Beloit, Wisconsin. Yeah, and so it's about 20 miles from Lake Geneva. It also happens to be the hometown of Matt Forbeck. I went to school, like one of my classmates was uh, Luke Gygax. We had uh, Mark <laughs> Weiss and Tracy Hickman, who would just roll on in, you know, to say hello. Like they used to play test D&D at college and stuff. And so when I was there, we had a club. It was a game club, but it was not your standard game club. It was it actually had a house, like a foreign language house. Like you could live in the game club. We had like 75 or 100 members in a 1,200 member school. So it was a big, big deal. Uh, Bullet Science Fiction Fantasy Association, BISFA. While I was there, you became an officer in the club. Uh, I got to meet lots of people. We ran a little con uh, and that little con was like 200, 250 attendees. But we get people from the community and so a lot of the folks at TSR TSR was still uh, in business in Lake Geneva at the time they would pop on over we could get like any of the illiterates which was a kind of writing group of TSR folks so like Troy Dennison who uh, co-created Dark Sun for example you know Margaret Weiss Tracy Hickman right. um, you know Gary would pop in sometimes um, mm-hmm. but as soon as somebody recognized him he'd bug out but we had this little show and so we'd invite people in so we had like Justin Achille come in from White Wolf at the time and I so I met a lot of people that way made connections one of another Another one of my classmates was Will Hindmarch, who went on to became the lead developer for a Vampire for a number of years when they rebooted Vampire. Worked at Atlas, and is, he's had a career in games since school. You know, another friend of mine was a production manager at Privateer Press. So we all kind of like network, met people, mm-hmm. and that was kind of our our professional network we established there. And then a lot of us went out to work in games in some capacity or another. So I, I got interested in doing games as a business there. Kind of leaned away from comics. So I came out. I wanted to do games, uh, and I started working in video games. Mm-hmm. Actually, so I was working on. I was on the side doing mod teams. There was a community that was born building around Unreal Tournament before they had the Unreal Engine. You know, Counter-Strike had hit right around the time I graduated. And so a lot of people wanted to, oh, well, let's do video games. That was the new thing, you know, because we had an open source engine finally for people to work in. And so that same 
thing bubbled up under. Everybody was hoping to kind of create the next Counter-Strike knockoff in this new community. I worked in that space for a number of years, but I always wanted to do role-playing games. So I invented a, a role-playing game as kind of a resume piece to get myself some freelance work called 10,000 Bullets. I loved crime films, and so I decided to start hacking at D20. Will told me, he's like, you should really try out this D20 thing. The OGL is out there. You don't have to risk your, you know, your own mechanics being stolen. And this is the early days of web publishing. Right. So I decided, you know, go ahead and I'll learn a system and I'll start making my own thing because the mod team was not going well, was falling apart. So yeah, I, I said, I'm going to do my own thing, be my own boss. I started working on this game and I looked at what was out there in the uh, ecosphere, like what was going on in the community. And, you know, there was a, they had dropped the new Star Wars D20. That was said, the Saga edition one? Oh, no, before or the that. one before. The this one before. The, the okay. first Star Wars D20. Oh, okay. and so Yeah, yeah. So that was around, right around 2000. So I was, I was out there, I was already working and I was kind of working off a 3.0 base. Then I, I looked for other games that might be in my lane because I wanted to have a unique resume piece. There was nothing out there. I'd seen a game called Series Archer. I kind of glossed over it. I went back to work. Beginning of 2002, I, there's a new game that's dropped called Spycraft. Uh, it has a free play thing. It looks almost exactly like my game, what I had been building for my own system. Oh. Yeah, well, no, it was fine well, because what I did is I was like, okay, great. They are smaller than D&D, so maybe they'd be interested in having me do a mod for them. I wrote to this guy named Patrick Capera, cold, and said, hey, I've been working on this, this hack of D&D. The work I've been doing is very close to yours. What if I reconfigured it to work with your game when it comes out? Because you're about two months from release. He's like, yeah, sure. What the hell? So I, I pass him the initial version and it goes around the office at AEG. People are like, what? What? Jeez, what is this? You know, and because you know, we're all about the same age. Everybody likes action movies. And like, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, we were making a plan to meet in the last Gen Con in Milwaukee in 2002. So I go out there and I show up with a hundred and some odd page manuscript. Here's my resume piece. Wham. Basically, Pat hired me on the spot to join the Spycraft team. So that was how I got in. Um, okay. I just had done a ton of work and, uh, you know, had a few connections and kind of just decided to go there, talk to people and go have some meetings. And then I spent years hustling. You know, I, I was working on a lot of Spycraft. I got pulled in pretty fast, joined the mechanics team. And then when Spycraft got cut loose in 2005, when AEG was in the midst of a major restructure, we all kind of were without a job. We just released Spycraft 2.0, the second edition. It really had no, it's this brand new game. It just released. And then like a month later, AEG shuttered all its role-playing game lines. We didn't know what to do. We had spent a year and a half working on this thing and we had we really believed in it. It had got all sorts of critical acclaim. So I said, well, you know, let's start our own shingle. And Patrick and our other partner at the time were like, eh, sure. So we kind of scraped together what money we'd been able to save. And, uh, you know, it wasn't very much. We worked at a deal out with AEG to take the, take the brand with us because um, they weren't going to use it. So we cut a deal with them and then we went out and started out on our own. Released our first game in 2006 and uh, did role-playing games for a number of years. And then in 2008, a friend who was telling me, oh, you gotta, you gotta look at, read this book. It'll make a great role-playing game. <laughs> and and uh, I was like, whatever. I'd heard that so many times. Everybody pitching me a game. Like, I like this thing. Make a game of it. You know, he he was harping on me, harping on me, harping on me for like three months. And I was like, fine, fine. I'll read the damn book if you'll leave me alone. So that first book is Mistborn, the Final Empire. So I read it and like, you know, like this guy's a gamer. This guy's a gamer. I can tell. Like he, how he's thought through things, how, you know, this pacing and stuff like that. So I wrote to Brandon Sanderson Cole. At this point, okay. he had, he had released Elantris and Final Empire. And okay. he was about to release Hero of Ages, the second book. Okay. So this he is was like, on his book tour. This is like before he really became the big showstopper that he is now. Oh, yeah. You know, he didn't have Wheel of Time at this point. I kind of, I wrote to Brandon Cold, you know, mm -hmm. and this is back when I don't even know that his wife was helping him yet. It's like it was just him. And mm -hmm. so I got him and he's like, oh, hey, you know, because he's a very personable guy. He's like, yeah, sure. Yeah. 
oh, I'm going to be in Portland in two days on a book tour. And I was like, can I just come by and we can talk? He's like, sure. So I showed up at his reading. We talked, we hit it off. Uh, We had a hamburger together. And then we kind of left with a commitment to see if we can make it work. And that was how we started. And then about the time we signed the papers, like right after we signed the papers, Brandon landed Wheel of Time. Okay. Robert Jordan died. And then that was the the rocket fuel, right? And so it was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) So we thought we were going to be working on like a couple novels and just to be a good way for us to to dip into a licensed property and and mm-hmm. stuff like that and then it just poof, off he goes and then that's how we got into it and then of course you know Mistborn is a huge hit for us we make the role playing game released that in 2012 you know everybody keeps asking us can you make a board game of this is there, how else can I get into it I don't I don't really do role playing games but I'm interested in you know board games to be a little more accessible and so you know, we went back to uh, Kevin Wilson mm-hmm. um, who you know is a friend of ours he, he was Pat's partner at AEG's writing partner and that's how they met and so they had worked on Seventh Sea and a number of other games together Legend of the Five Rings and stuff and so and Spycraft Kevin's like yeah sure what the hell I'll work on a game with you <laughs> you know we uh, you know we put it together and, and we released Mistborn House for and that was kind of our big launch into board games the wild and turnsy tale that is crafty games <laughs> well, just... <laughs> this is I mean this story that story goes across I know it seems meandering but you gotta it goes right. across 15 years there's a lot of downtime and I think if I have a professional skill you know like you talk about your core skills it would be stepping on rakes I spent the whole time like is there a way I could screw this up I'll find a way you know and okay. and I'll do the wrong thing the first time and then I'll turn around and I'll, you know, it's like Wiley Coyote I'm just step on the next thing and next thing and then eventually I'll find my way through the field you know, we spent a lot of time figuring out how to do this we didn't know how to run a business when we started out we knew how to make books but we didn't know how to publish them mm-hmm. uh, we didn't know anything about distribution uh, we didn't know other than yeah there are distributors <laughs> No, and they sell this the is the thing that we should probably figure out. Well, we have yeah, no idea. So, and there's no book out here. On no. how to, but we knew that we we believed in our ability to craft good books. Okay. And that's how we got started. And so and it was just from there. It was like I, I joke with Pat, like, you know, like our superpower. Yeah, we, we have all these relationships with somebody five years ago or whatever. But mm-hmm. the important thing for us is our superpowers. We're like that little kid from Captain Planet. You know, everybody's got their rings like fire, mm-hmm. earth. And then the one kid's like heart. Heart is our power. <laughs> like, no, it's. <laughs> It really was. It was the power of like good relationships. We both always be uh, fair dealers and honest, honorable and, and kind to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I reflecting on it now, I feel that's the game changer. Like I, I think, you know, we were good at what we do, technically good at what we do. What mattered more than anything is that people think well of us personally, you know, they like us. And mm-hmm. so when we come, you know, when we talk to them about something, they're willing to give us a chance. And that really matters more than almost anything. This is not a big industry. It's run on relationships and what you do echoes into eternity. <laughs> <laughs> to be overly dramatic um, but you know it really is true like your missteps and especially your unkindnesses and your kindnesses really matter and so I think it's really too important to think about that it's about relationships more than anything mm-hmm. else it's a fantastic tale honestly because it's one of the, <laughs> the for tabletop arcade on the podcast like I kind of had this guy oh, I'm a gamer let me try this and like it was in my back burner for so long and it was like a couple years ago I went you know I kind of just went screw it I just got to do it right right and and in the in intensive like I'm enough of a perfectionist that I'm like oh I'm just going to screw this up. I'm going to do something wrong. It's just going to fall apart. And then, I, you know, something broke in my brain where it was like, no, if I don't do it, it won't happen. Right. Yeah. Got to take the risks when you can. Because of that, I got into relationships with local game stores. I got in so much so that they sent me to Gamma on their behalf. They said, oh, wow. you know, I was a champion for me. It's like, oh, yeah, you do podcasts. You're, like, you're in the store all the time. You're one of my regulars. Like, do you want to go? Because I can't, because it's literally me who runs the shop. So I can't. For me to go to Gamma, I have to shut down. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go be your master and talk to people. And then I started making 
making connections and talking to people in the industry. Like you said, it's all about relationships. And the thing I noticed between Gen Con, Gamma, Alliance Open House, and a couple other events that I was able to go to, everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And Uh, and if you don't know somebody, you can just ask them their name. All of a sudden you are, you know, oh yeah, you're so-and-so, you knows this. Like, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's this beautiful community that everybody's pretty much, relatively speaking, able to and willing to help each other out. Never really saw anybody like be shut down. I never really saw anyone like, oh, we can't talk to you about that because you know we're more important than you. Well, it yeah. happens in the industry, <laughs> sure, but it's not as prevalent in the game industry that I feel that other industries might have. We're not really in competition with with each other. I mean, you know, when we built Crafty, our approach was started out saying we're never gonna be a big company. Right. Like, it just I don't foresee that for us. Our goal, if we can't be King Kong or Godzilla, we're gonna try to be a cockroach because what a cockroach can do is a cockroach can survive being stepped upon, right? So we that was our business model from the beginning. We started out being small, durable, able to kind of scuttle <laughs> between the toes of very big people that would mm. accidentally or intentionally step on us. It's not the most uh, beautiful <laughs> mental <laughs> picture, but it really has worked for us. It allowed us to make mistakes. It allowed us to survive our own mistakes and, and mishaps and midlife crises and having children and you know all those other things that I've seen other companies just go as over tea kettle over. Good example here is the pandemic. You know, where this has been a tough year for everybody. I, I think it's maybe invisible from the outside, especially people who aren't on the creative side. Like this, this year has been a very tough year creatively. It's hard to yeah. find motivation. Uh, you know, a lot of us are already working from home, our one outlet. And a very vital part of that was going to cons and seeing colleagues, you know, like you, yep. you could count on that every quarter or, or more often to see people get in touch with the customers. You know, that's an important selling, sometimes the most important selling venue. That's where you do all your demos, where you test products. You know, it's where you get pitched on new games. All that didn't happen last year. There have been some venues for, you know, the pitch project. I got to give a shout out to Jay Cormier and same Lung Finn got his name wrong. I know I did. But those guys who put together the pitch project did a great job. Uh, we actually have got two, maybe three games out of that one. It was fantastic. So ultimately, we're not having the social connections. We're not right. having the professional connections. The industry is just, it's all relying on kind of old, it's kind of a musty cobweb of connections right now. Right. You know, that's tough. And, and then you have to suddenly become a stay-at-home teacher or whatever else on top of everything else you're doing. It's tough. But you're seeing it now, like then the production was what happened with production in China and stuff. That mm-hmm. was a big disruption. The ripples are still going back and forth. I mean, aside from the basics, like, oh, shipping is expensive because the containers are, there's a container shortage. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you can't get stuff shipped. If all the containers are over here, you can't get anything on the boat. So it's going to take a month there and a month back again and then back and forth. And so this is not like a pebble in the water where you feel some ripples. This is a tide going out and then coming like a tsunami. The tide gets sucked out and then a big wave hits and then it's sucked out again and wave hits. Mm -hmm. And so we're still going to be feeling those sort of aftershocks. I think all the way through this year. Yeah, I've, I'd personally hazard a guess it's going to be a, probably a couple years before it all hopefully settles back down into a relative normal again. Yeah, yeah. I think because... You know- like you said, yeah. it's going to be this catastrophe or this thing caused the next thing, which almost domino-wise, right. and before all of that waves settle, it's yeah. going to be a while. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened with the containers, is the, everybody mm-hmm. who got jammed up last year, an early Chinese New Year, followed by the pandemic, and the lockdowns in Wuhan, and then everywhere else, and then the production lines having to slowly come back online, all those things go out, well, then all the containers are gone. <laughs> you know? right. And all the ships are on the other side of the pond, and then, okay, then they all come back, well, then everything that's built up hits again, and then mm-hmm. back again, and then what it's 
to that we've got to get stuff out for Christmas, the things that were scheduled, and all the people who are trying to get stuff for Christmas that couldn't get it online are trying to jam it in there. And so it's just like it's crazy how it just yeah. it stands up and then falls right back over again. You've talked about doing games like Mistborn, which are, are you know mm-hmm. IP licensed yeah. stuff, and then you've also talked about some more original concepts. Can you talk about some of the differences that you faced when approaching those type of projects from a developer's standpoint? Let's talk in the context of Mistborn. In some ways, I think developing a licensed property, the hardest part doing creative work, I think, is the blank page, right? You know, you hear this with people talking about writing, and it, and this is tough when you don't have any boundaries. When you can do anything, you realize, oh, I'm totally free, and then you're like, but I'm totally free. Like, <laughs> I'm totally free. And so it's hard to kind of pick a direction sometimes. And with a license, you have a little bit of a security blanket and that you know, uh, one, you know it has an established fan base. So when you're a publisher, you're thinking like, okay, I know there are people out here that, are, that already want this. And you can test what do they want? Why do people like Mistborn? It's a good example. I started there when I was designing the role-playing game because we, we did that first. You know, I'd read the books. I knew what I liked about them. You know, I was able to go out there and say, look, what do people like? Well, I learned very quickly. People really like the magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's, you know, that's Sanderson's, that's really his thing. It, like his calling card is his original magic systems and the way he thinks about it. So I knew like I had to get that right. And so that became a pin. You end up kind of like being the, that crazy guy with the red string and the pins on the cork board. Like you're twitting your ideas like I need to do this. And then I need to, this has to be the best. This is the most important. And right. these things come off of it. I have to do all these things. And so, you know, when I designed Mistborn Adventure Game, the role-playing game, that was the thing where I started, uh, knew three things. I knew that people liked the magic. I knew that I was working in the Mistborn universe and I was not going to alter it, but I was allowed to write in the cracks. So I was able to fill out things around the world, but not mess with the narrative. I knew that people really liked the magic. I had the book to follow. I knew that Brandon really liked the old Star Wars role-playing game uh, by West End Games, the D6, pile of D6. Yeah, those are the things I started with. And uh, I went from there and you know, I said, well, what's the focus? And so you'll find in this game, it's kind of like a long lines of fate or something like that by Evil Hat Games. And it's a pretty simple, straightforward system using D6s to resolve because we knew that a lot of our readers uh, and people picked up this game might be picking it up because they're Sanderson fans and maybe don't know anything about it. So when we developed right. that product, we developed for somebody who's never seen a role-playing game necessarily, but they want to read mm-hmm. more detail. And when I was in college, a friend of mine had the, um, oh gosh, what was it? There's a guide to the Wheel of Time. And yeah. it was, it didn't have great, illustrations and stuff like that but somebody had put this thing together and published it they would read that book obsessively because they're reading the novels but they really wanted more right and they wanted mm-hmm. that, it wasn't just a glossary and since this pre-internet era you didn't have like wikis and stuff to give you that that's what, how i kind of contextualized this book like there's gonna be people who just want more mistborn and they're in between novels and they're kind of a collector and so they we give them something that that kind of encourages them to try it as a game and so let's yeah. make it as accessible straightforward central mechanic stuff like that but then when i got to the magic the magic is where all the detail goes in like because the, the magic in mistborn for those of you that don't know the mistborn universe too much everybody consumes metals the type of metal you consume and can use or burn produces a very specific magical effect consume steel uh if you're the build burn it you can push on sources of metal and it but if you consume iron and can can burn it you can pull on sources of metal and so that's a very narrow context you get this kind of low supers context so it's like mm-hmm. well how can i make these characters interesting and diverse where everybody wants to use magical powers so we framed that all in that in that context and so like the base level character is a person who can use one metal like that's the average power set so you're on the you're kind of on the fringe if you're a person with no superpowers but i knew that that's what people are playing for that's what they liked mm-hmm. and they want that detail they need that specificity because that matters in the books and so it had mm-hmm. to matter in our game and so the and the same thing in Mistborn house war you know what's the other thing people like about Mistborn? well all that backbiting noble regency era nobility mechanics and so we right. kind of took that idea as like we can't really do that in a role-playing game but let's 
build an entire board game around mm-hmm. this competitive thing and that's where he kind of zoomed out and made all the players the head of a house and that and the notion of house wars that you are dealing with the pressures of from above and below to try to manage and, and maintain your position mm-hmm. and that's what the whole came out as a you know game that one of kevin's favorite games is i'm the boss and so it was always a game where you kind of buy into each other's deals and stuff like that and so that right. we worked that in there and ends up being a really fun game so when people are like well, why is there take that i'm like well you know and it's not that much take that honestly but why why are you able to mess it's not an engine building game no. the game is about being this savage nobility screwing right. each other over and so the thing i caught about it that i love yes you're all noble houses yes you're trying to win not only there's a you have your good and bad mechanic of like well what side is the rebellion really going to end on mm-hmm. so you have to play the middle ground a lot but you also can't just bully every other player because you need everybody. Yeah, yeah. No, the, and, the, and the balance of that was very cool to see. I just can't run away with this game and screw everybody over. I have to play well with everybody and then just at the end of the game, like, okay, I'm going to win. Yeah, the, the key in Mistborn House where I find, you know, some people think, oh, it's just, well, you burn the whole thing down. And if people collectively agree to basically let the rebellion win, you know, that's fine. That happens in games where, especially when people haven't played much because it looks, depending on the card flop, yes, you can. It can be, come easier and if people are refu- but the reason that really happens is because people are not cooperating they don't understand that cooperation it's best to, co- to cooperate a little bit to get little bites because uh, in a five player game you only can solve one problem on your turn but everybody else uh, gets to solve a problem in their turn and you can always buy in do you want one chance to score by being a jerk or do you want to take five chances to score you know one big one on your turn and then but buying little pieces into everybody else's just for a few points here and there and then they won't see you coming and then one good knife stick i find mm-hmm. is really the key like just twist it maybe a little bit for fun but mm-hmm. you know ultimately right. it, it's about the timing your if you're gonna backstab timing that backstab at the right time can really right. turn the game and that's what is so fun that's the big moment of the game it's just like mm-hmm. ha you know a2 brute so you kind of that's a fun part so like that's the thing is you know when you're creating a license can you get off creating moments that reflect what the ip is about and i think right. that that when you're developing a license you want to engage that same level of excitement and so it's knowing what the ip is and knowing how to engage it you know now if you're developing an original uh, to get back on track developing an original mm-hmm. property i think it depends on where you're kind of starting like spycraft we knew we were making a game at spies and so the goal is to make it feel like some spies to remind people they are spies to make them feel like james bond right so mm-hmm. we're engaging this emotional almost all game design in my opinion starts with how are you engaging a human emotionally everything else comes from that it's not mechanics first you know people talk about oh these games are hollow these games are you know oh this game is just a multiplayer solitaire it's a plinko machine it's a Mm -hmm. you know whatever you can design games that way that with strong mathematical models and math first and you just and treat the theme as a bucket of paint you just slap Mm -hmm. on there but you know coming from role-playing games and stuff like that i approach games as how do people how do you remind people why they love what they're doing right now and so it's creating moments in games like big Mm -hmm. moments like yeah 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 i got that backstab off but also how does that how do you tie those moments to doing the thing that you want to be doing how do you marry those two things together that's ideal and so it's theme first i usually start when i design games with theme how do we and use that to inform everything else and with theme i'm always trying 
and meet an emotional. This is going to sound uh, maybe overly stated, but uh, an emotional need. Because mm-hmm. why would somebody pick my game off the shelf versus somebody else? Sure. Uh, some other game out there. Because there are games that execute technically way better than anything else I could do. Role-playing games are about, especially about emotional, social interactions. And so I want to create those interactions and let them play in the universe and, and step away from their daily problems and feel like I'm an awesome spy. I am, you know, going to go to this island in 14th century to speak to our new game, uh, Buru. With board games, it's a little hard because you have board games have to be balanced. They have almost always are competitive. You know, balancing theme with the mechanics is a little more of a dance. But I think, again, I always look for what are these high points? Where do people feel really excited? What are they most excited about? How do they physically engage with the game in space? Which is one of the hardest parts about playtesting in a pandemic, you know, virtual playtesting. It's like, it's not about people crunching numbers. It's about watching where people's hands go. Mm. What do they do? What are their faces doing? How are they think? How long are they thinking about something? Where do they hang up? You learn so much by observing people without a single word. And you also observe how they react. Mm. Uh, you know, like, when are they tearing? When are they smirking devilishly? Like, those are things that tell you so much about where your game is meeting their emotional needs and what it's evoking. At the end of the day, we're all just, we're monkeys that want to be happy. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, true. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, you know, that's, that's I think, for most people, why they are gamers is, you know, yeah. either married the escapism with finding some sort of fun aspect of it. I'm one of those weird people who, like, I could be trashed at the game. I don't care. If I had a fun time, if I had a good social encounter with everybody at the table, then I won, right? Yeah. My play group here, we are all war gamers. Mm. So we started out as war gamers and started playing board games together. Right. So we're, like, ruthlessly competitive. Trash talking. You know, love people love Ameritrash stuff. But at the end of the day, if the game is fun and our, the reason we come, people come every week for until the pandemic, we had about seven years. Seven years we didn't have a game night canceled. But it was because people come over here, they pour themselves a bourbon, we mm. sit down, we play, we catch up with each other, we sit around the table. Everybody's like, well, what did you play? Oh, you know, we played this something. I lost really badly. But you know, these are right. these are very competitive games and we're competitive people. But at the end of the day, it's we're there for each other mm. to hang out. And that's, again, the emotional need comes before everything else. Normally I ask this a little bit earlier in interviews, but what have you been playing recently, pandemic-wise? And I will caveat, you cannot use Buru as an example. You can't. <laughs> okay. I, will, I always say, because I always talk to people who are like, oh, I'm pitching this new game. Like, I know you're playtesting it. I know you've been working on it. <laughs> yeah. But what else has been in the yeah, it's been, it's been solo mode. virtual table? It's been solo mode, solo mode, solo mode for me for months. My Christmas gift for my wife is to play more board games with me. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. We've been playing Lost Cities. She is a, well, she's a scientist by training. So, she likes abstract games, tends so okay. like Azul. But she's also very competitive. Don't tell her I said that. She hates being called competitive. But <laughs> she loves Azul. Probably the one we've played the most. We play in Lost Cities. That has been a good one. Again, it's a straight competitive abstract game. That's that's pretty good. I'm taught her Castles of Burgundy recently, which is one of my personal favorites. There's a lot of moving parts. Oh, what is this? Why do I have to do this? It's like, because eh, the rules say. <laughs> she'll get there. She'll get there. When she figures out how to how to beat me, she'll mm-hmm. definitely be into it. But yeah, for, for me, it's been mostly kind of short abstract games, especially two-player games. I recently played Smartphone Inc. from, uh, from Arcane Wonders, uh, which I really like that game. It's got a coolest action selection mechanism. I love I, I love action selection games. That's kind of my personal favorite. And I'm getting into economic games a little more, not like stock trading games so much, but not um, quite the 18xx series. But no, uh... no, I, I'm very excited <laughs> to try Pan Am because I love Acquire. Uh, Acquire right. for me was kind of a revelation that it was so elegant. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this game was developed in 1967. It really did lay the groundwork for how economic 
board games, the modern economic board game works. So great respect to Sid Saxon and Am. It looks quite a bit like that mm-hmm. uh, as well. Similar. So those are kind of the things that I trend towards the light to midweight uh, Euro games, but I like games with lots of interaction. You mm-hmm. know, even even Castles of Burgundy still with the kind of like what tiles you're grabbing and how, you know, so there's a timing element, which I think is really important. And so uh, I always, always go back to that one whenever I can. You kind of hit on it a little bit. With Brandon Sanderson, you had the Mistborn Adventure game RPG, which then mm-hmm. kind of also spun into the Mistborn house where like how do we make a board game out of this that way we can right. hit like multiple audiences was that the catalyst that made crafty shift a little bit more away from the rpgs to more board gaming or was there something else kind of spiraled that out for you guys it was it was kind of a combination of things so we'd done the spycraft line for a while and then we started a um we did a, a fantasy game called fantasy craft we took our system out there this was from 2007 to 2009 we were developing that so we spent a bunch of time kind of started out realized it was going to be a spinoff for spycraft 2.0 which was supposed to be a toolkit you know we wanted to build a system and then have everything connect back to that system. But in that development time, we lost our erstwhile partner in the process and we redeveloped it as a, as a new system, realized we could probably do better. It was it was a turbulent time. We released that game. It did very well, uh, but it happened to release on the exact same day as Pathfinder, literally. Okay. So Pathfinder was you know, the biggest role playing game of, you know, probably since the Vampire of the Masquerade was released. You know, I mean, it was yeah. D&D third edition um, easily. But I was going to say like Vampire Masquerade, D&D 3.0, and, and then, then Pathfinder, was, Pathfinder. Like, yeah. was like the so, big bears of the field. Exactly. So you know, we released a, pa- a fantasy game where everybody's like, this game is so good. This is what I'd hoped fourth edition D&D would look like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but we had an extra delay because we went back. We realized halfway through this really needs to be its own thing. And so and then, of course, we came right into the Pathfinder Thresher. And then we left our former publisher at the time. Uh, there was a pretty uh, acrimonious dispute. We parted ways with them. That was a blow to that game and kind of blow to us. And we, we shifted towards, uh, you know, I, we continued working on that game, but I shifted to doing Mistborn. So we had landed the license. Mistborn proved to be much more successful than we had ever expected. And so I think with that being, you know, I was the, the brand manager for, for Mistborn and have been, you know, for 10 years now. But, you know, I had a child and that all these things started to pile up it's a lot of work to grind out books and especially as a small studio especially with a our most successful brand was also one that's very difficult to write or write for um because you're you know re- weaving in and out of exist- existing canon there's a lot of limitations of what you can do and then it's hard to find freelance authors that can also do that and then of course that can uh, canon is shifting all the time you know because brand is making choices about st- about the universe and back writing some of it you know we have a kind of a carte blanche now we've reached a state of equilibrium where it's easier for us to kind of see this is a fixed box we're in as opposed to having like what we were writing a lot of this was happening at the same time that the alley of law series was coming out and there's a lot of retcon well not retconning but there's a lot of stuff that's happening there that's coming back and affecting earlier stuff and so you know it was made it a very kind of minefield to walk in the sanderson fans are very into their canon you know they, yes. they really kind of figured all that so that's we want to be respectful of that because the canon is very important to an important part of our customer base and so we have to kind of stay in those boxes so i think around that time patrick said you know like i i really want to look at something that's a little more achievable so the board games where we started shift he was found a lot more creative interest in that that's kind of started it and then we had Mistborn. we had this great property and so right. like well why don't we marry the two and so that and then of course when uh Mistborn house war dropped on kickstarter in 2016 and then did three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, i mean that right. was the game changer for us and that allowed us to start plowing most of that money back into development of new titles mm-hmm. and stuff like that and that so that's where we kind of realized maybe there's some legs to this thing you know we didn't know like this could be a one and done you know we got a couple games that we are interested in that also kind of brought us out of the woodwork people are coming to us and baru was one of those first games that was brought to us on that so that's kind of like 
it's it's been a pretty natural progression. We could be small, we could be the same company we were, and just have the two of us writing books, you know, forever. But I right. think we both want to do something different. I, in particular, with having a growing family and stuff like that, is like having a way to complete a project all the way through, rather than having right. a, just a, a you know sometimes it's like feels like a baton death march of writing another role playing game book. And right. <laughs> like I um, love we need I another love, supplement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love writing it, but the the hardest part of uh, role playing game development sometimes is spend six, eight, twelve months on a book. You release it. Your fans go out and buy it the day one. They read it that night. They come back and they're like, all right, awesome. When the next book coming out? So right. That is a <laughs> very expensive, very difficult thing because you have to be like a content mill when you're running the company uh, and you're doing all these other things. Like you can't, that balancing act is beyond us. So board games are another way for us to find new ways to publish stuff. And it, again, but there's a lot of rakes to be stepped on. So we had to do that first. <laughs> so that's how we got here. Well, Alex, we've been talking for quite a while. Yes. So I'm going to go with one final question for you and you know, kind of give you the floor here. What is the next and latest thing coming up from Crafty Games? Speaking of original, um, developing original games, we have a game that's very near and dear to my heart called Buru. Uh, B-U-R-U. It is a light to midweight Euro game set in Indonesian Majapahit Empire around the 14th century in which you are playing nobles that you go to this, you're going to this island named Buru. You've arrived there and you are trying to build a relationship with the islanders. The way you're going to do that is to pay tribute to the, the spirits they revere. And so, you know, you've got the kind of Euro element. You're doing some resource collection and some engine building, you know, re- recruiting your islanders. And it's got it kind of all underneath this neat, very easy to grok bidding system. You have these little uh, explorers that you bid out there. You've got five of them. They're rated one to five. And you bid them face down into different areas of the board. And then you reveal them and determine uh, whoever has the most power gets first choice of actions. And so you go through each region and, and turn as you build your way to paying tribute which, where you get your, most of your esteem. And so you do that across five rounds, then you're done. So it's it's this game, it's it's really, I, I really, I've liked it. It was the first thing we bought after we started making board games. We got, we released mm-hmm. Mistborn House War and then that weekend we met the designer. So this is a game I've been working on and developing for like four years now. So it's coming to Kickstarter finally. We're about two months out, end of March or probably early to mid-April. We're still trying to shake that out. But it's, it's this beautiful game, absolutely mm-hmm. gorgeous. It's been illustrated by Dan May and Angar at Ad- Rasa. So we've got an Indonesian artist. Angar is, a, is Indonesian. We have Indonesian consultants. We've built the game to be language neutral. So beautiful components. Big old, chunky mm-hmm. uh, meeples represent are the totems of the spirits because that those are passed throughout the game. It's You've got like all these nice wood tokens in there for the resources and the explorers and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Got an expansion on day one that adds an extra region to the game. So it's, it's really, it's the first time I did uh, work on a Euro. I've always kind of worked on more of the American he- heavily thematic stuff, but I got to do the thematic development on this that the game's always been called Buru but at the time the designer he's like just picked an island he's like let's throw that in there and I decided <laughs> I, I got looking into it and I did some research on the history and the anthropology I was like oh this is really cool and then we got into the and then did some more work on the art when is the first time they uh, it appeared in, in a written history and it's like oh right around the middle of the 14th century when there's a huge expansion and did you know that there's this giant kingdom that was there and like look at it it was a Hindo Malay thing and, and then it just like opened up this thing of this beautiful <laughs> art and all these influences and, and, and so it kind of took that and and really ran with it. It's highly interactive. It's highly, it's really dynamic game. 
Uh, we got our first reviews are coming back and people are uh, saying really good things about it, which is very satisfying. But it's it's also accessible. We have families. I have uh, oldest son. He's really wants to be a gamer. He's always asking me, when can we play X? When can I mm-hmm. when I get my hands on Y, you know, and it's a game that you could teach to your family and like in the same way that you can like use Catan as like a gateway drug to mm-hmm. get into to keep people into like Euro games and other stuff like that. I think that right. Buru could be a similar game for that because you can teach a little bit of engine building, some competitive bidding, some you know some basic resource management objective fulfillment you know nothing is hard to understand but you know it's how you how you work with what you've got and there's a lot of gaminess there without it being clunky it's not a vital lacerta game right where you get this like, <laughs> you get this genius level guy that's making all these incredibly sophisticated connections like but it still is very logical it's very mm-hmm. easy to get and so i think for for folks who have not been able to lay hands on a lot of games i think they'll be able to pick up and play and you will be still be very satisfied playing and they can kind of put up a good game even if they don't know exactly the right way to win i'm really stoked again game is buru is coming to kickstarter in probably early april at this point so split the difference sounds good All well right, alex thanks. it's been wonderful to have you on our show and talk to you, you. and just rattle on about board games and in, in the industry we will be in touch and so thank you sounds good thanks <laughs> Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed our time with Alex Flagg from Crafty Games. It is exciting to hear some upcoming projects and some stories from within the industry. As always, thanks for listening. And we're on social medias like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're also on YouTube. So make sure to follow, like, subscribe, and get those notifications so you know when we post new items. Until next time, happy gaming. to Tabletop Arcanum, produced by Justin Taylor. This episode is hosted by Justin Taylor. Mixing and editing by Richard Geese. Original theme by Paul Moore and Isaac Gilbert. Check the description for this episode's featured background music. You can follow us on most social media platforms. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow, and leave us a review if you would. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.